Okay, so I really think the best thing I should do is conclude my um, sentiments on religion. Uh, and here's how I'm going to do that. Because I'm at the point in my life where I need to take a break from religion. So I'm going to start my one month break today after I do this episode. It's very important that we do that. This is January 26, 2021, John Pavlovitz. America doesn't need unity with hatred. During his inaugural address, just as he had done many times on the campaign trail, President Joe Biden once again delivered a heartfelt plea for national unity, saying, Today on this January day, my whole, my whole soul is in this, bringing America together, uniting our people. He continued saying that Americans need to rally together around the common foes we face, anger, resentment, hatred, extremism, lawlessness, violence, disease, joblessness, hopelessness. I believe the, I believe the president's soul is indeed in this and mine is as well. I echo sentiments and agree on these beautiful shared aspirations. But as the right is now weaponizing the word unity and is using it to avoid accountability, sidestep justice, disregard equity, and ignore criminality, there is a unity that decent Americans do not need. Decent Americans don't need unity with willful liars. While a substantial portion of Americans, the vast majority of the opposing parties still knowingly cling to the big lie of a fraudulent election, they do not deserve our unity. Such manufactured claims are fundamentally divisive and intentionally so. Only when human beings stand together on the solid bedrock of objective truth can any commonality be unearthed and any compromises carved out. After 64 lost lawsuits and dozens of failed recounts, there simply is no evidence of any kind to merit these fabrications of a corrupted electoral process. And as long as our friends, family members, and lawmakers reiterate such a falsehood, unity is neither possible nor required nor helpful. Decent Americans don't need unity with domestic terrorists. On January 6th, our nation sustained one of the worst domestic attacks in our history, a brazen and bloody assault upon the very seat of our constitution intended to violently seize control of the government and overturn the election results. This very likely occurred with the foreknowledge, aid, and support of many Republicans, lawmakers, and the former uh, White House occupant himself, Donald Trump. The fact that the Republican Party has not only failed to universally condemn this attack, but has allowed many involved in it to still retain their seats as lawmakers while pushing hard against Senate impeachment of Donald Trump, makes, unity, makes uniting with them tacit approval of terrorism. To align with people who will not hold the perpetrators of such ugliness accountable would be to embolden lawlessness, bless, murder, and cosign insurrection. Decent Americans don't need unity with people disconnected from reality. The nonsensical QAnon conspiracy movement that has polluted the right and borrowed itself into partisan media and into our very political machinery 
is predicated on fantastical and baseless claims intended to ratchet up irrational fears. Invisible dangers operating in the shadows. Popes being secretly arrested, widespread rolling blackouts, massive child trafficking rings working under the direction of the Democrats. These wild and reckless myths perpetuated by people who exist fully untethered from objective reality can simply not be tolerated by responsible, rational adults. We can and should work to find common ground across the sometimes vast chasms of politics and religion and the turbulent trenches of immigration, healthcare, climate change, poverty. But there is no common ground to be found with unstable cultists, C-U-L-T-I-S-T-S, cultists, and we should not be burned to find any. Decent Americans don't need unity with unrepentant racists. Again, decent Americans don't need unity with unrepentant racists. Watching the same people who violently objected to athletes of color kneeling silently before a football game or to disparate Americans marching to affirm the values of black lives or to, or to diverse Americans standing together to condemn the assassinations by police of human beings of color, now so casually brush off or completely ignore the violent white mobs at the Capitol has been grief worthy. These phony Antifa false equivalencies in Black Lives Matter whataboutism illustrate how deeply embedded into so many people's psyches racial prejudice is and this moment must be a time when we confront it and do not shy away from it under the pretense of ceremonial unity. Proud boys don't deserve unity. Boogaloo boys don't deserve unity. Klansmen without robes and hoods don't deserve unity. Black lives merit our passionate disunity with such people. Unity, though invaluable, is not given freely. While lawmakers like Josh Hawley, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, and Mo Brooks, who are heavily implicated in the Capitol attack, still hold their seats of undeserved power, unity is impossible. While politicians like Ted Cruz, Kevin McCarthy, Jim Jordan, and Matt Gates continue to double down on the knowing lie of a stolen election, there can be no unity. While Republicans compare protesters demanding that black lives not be made expendable with an act of white terrorism intending to overthrow the government, unity will not be forthcoming. America needs people to step across lines of political and religious affiliation to craft a way forward in consequential matters right now, and I want to be one of those people. I agree that we need human beings of every walk of life to, as the president said during his inauguration, listen to one another, hear one another, see one another, show respect to one another. We desperately need to unite around our shared and interdependent humanity. Yet those needs do not supersede the elemental virtues of honesty, fairness, equity, decency, and they do not override the constitution. The call for unity cannot entail abandoning the very heart of this nation's laws and the solid bet robbing objective truth or the intrinsic value of all human beings. Unity that requires us to abide terrorism or, or perpetuate inequity or ratify violence isn't unity, it's coddling evil. Unity between compassionate, truthful human beings burdened to a collaborative effort at restoring our nation is essential. Un unity with un 
repentant darkness is not. America and the people who call it home or dream of calling it home deserve better. How do you love toxic people? February 6, 2022, John Pavlovitz. The most common question people ask me when we talk either in person or virtually is essentially a variation on a single theme. How do I love someone I no longer like? They've recently realized something about a friend, family member, or partner that they simply cannot reconcile with the person they once knew and loved. A theological belief, political affiliation, or stance on a social issue that is so far beyond what they consider within the bonds of decency. In many cases, these people have attempted for years to navigate these differences with difficult conversations or with the holding of their tongues. They tiptoed around the moral landmines laid out during intense holiday exchanges. They've allowed a thousand small compromises. They give the benefit of the doubt. After years of honest dialogue, genuine attempts at understanding and a true desire to bridge massive chasms of belief, they've now come to the conclusion that the fractures may be too great to mend. They have learned something about these people that feels like a deal breaker. They've, they ask me, how do I love this person knowing what I know about them? I tell them that they may now have to love them from a distance. Loving another human being doesn't necessitate you placing yourself in harm's way. It doesn't demand you sustaining repeated wounds. And it doesn't require you to make peace with what you cannot abide. The biggest misconception people have about love is that they owe people they care for permanent proximity. They don't. That isn't love's expectation despite the way we are, despite the way we are guilted into believing it. You aren't required to stay closely tethered to anyone simply because you once were. As you and the other person you love evolve and grow, again, as you and the other person you love evolve and grow, and as you learn more about who they presently are, your shared past does not bring the expectation of staying now. It is perfectly acceptable to decide this person is toxic to me, this relationship is unhealthy to me, and I need distance in order to be emotionally healed and to live my full convictions. Ultimately, you owe people you care deeply for authenticity and decency, but not performance. Again, ultimately, you owe people you care deeply for authenticity and decency, but not permanence. All this to say, religious beliefs and political positions are sometimes worth separation. If a person close to you has welcomed conspiracy or denied science or embraced hatred or applauded inequity or trafficked in stereotypes to the point that you feel morally incompatible, admitting this and responding to it isn't unloving. Loving someone means honoring their humanity and you can do that from a distance. You can do that without physical proximity. You can even do that with disconnection. The relationships in our lives are not all designed to last for the duration of our lives. Marital and relational separations come when the reality of the differences between us and other human beings are actively injuring one or both of us and to stay and to stay is an act of violence or self-harm. As a Christian who fully believes in loving God, self, and others, I've come to have peace with the idea that this doesn't burden me with having intimacy with harmful people even if I have for years, even decades before. 
even if I have for years that days and decades before. Jesus' teachings come with a responsibility to offer compassion and seek peace and traverse reasonable differences. But they don't come with the responsibility to stay when all efforts to do so have proven not only fruitless but hazardous. Then I can shake the dust off of my feet and move on. Our families, friendships, and casual relationships are all being stretched to the point of breaking right now. And though we as people of love should do everything we can to weather that turbulence and navigate relational disconnections, we are not required to sustain repeated damage in the name of love. We don't have to stay in harm's way in order to prove our empathy or our goodness. Loving ourselves also means moving from toxic people and loving them from a safe distance. The Church of Not Being Horrible, March 12, 2017, John Pavlovitz. I'm tired. I'm tired of professed Christians preaching a Jesus that they seem to have no interest at all in emulating, of religious people being a loud, loveless noise in the world while claiming to speak for a God who is supposedly love. I know the world is tired of such people. I am fairly certain that God is too. I'm starting a new church, the church of not being horrible. Our mission statement is simply this. Don't be horrible to people. Don't treat them as less worthy of love, respect, dignity, joy, and opportunity than you are. Don't create caricatures out of them based on their skin color, their religion, their sexual orientation, the amount of money they have, the circumstances they find themselves in. Don't seek to take away things from them that you already enjoy in abundance. Civil rights, clean water, education, marriage, access to health care. Don't tell someone's story for them about why they are poor, depressed, addicted, victimized, alone. Let them tell their story and believe they know it better than you do. Don't imagine that your experience of the world is everyone's experience of the world, that the ease, comfort, support, affection you have received are universal. Don't be preoccupied with how someone experiences with God, how they define family who they love. Cultivate your faith, family, marriage alone. The central question at any given moment in the church is, am I being horrible right now? If one concludes that they are, they endeavor to not do so. If they are unsure, they allow other people to help them see their horrible blind spots of privilege, prejudice, and ignorance, and then they respond. In other words, our sacred calling is to be decent, to be kind, to be compassionate, to, to be whatever it is that we believe this place is lacking, to be, to be the kind of people the world needs, and it definitely needs less horrible these days. The church of not being horrible will gather every week to celebrate the inherent goodness of people. We'll share stories of the ways we succeeded in being less than horrible to our families, co-workers, and strangers, and we'll challenge ourselves to be even less horrible in the coming week. We'll do this faithfully, repeatedly, and passionately, and hopefully we'll begin to watch the world around us gradually become less angry, less bitter, less painful, less horrible. I'm not sure such religion will catch on as being horrible seems to be trending these days among religious people, but I think it's worth a shot. I think it might alter the homes, marriages, and communities we're living in, if not the planet we're standing on. It might renovate our very hearts themselves so prone to being horrible. It might help us become the best version of ourselves that we are able to be. If you're interested in joining the church, you don't need to pray a magic prayer. You don't have to attend a membership class or recite any creeds or take a test or promise to give financially. There are no theological or bureaucratic hoops to jump through. There is no conversion. There is only commencement. 
You simply begin right where you are in this very moment, seeking to be less horrible to the people you live with, work with, come across in the street, interact with online, see from a distance, that's it. It may seem like a low bar to set, but it's actually a beautiful and somewhat novel aspiration lately for a church, making the world less cruel, less violent, less insulting, less horrible. If you feel like that might be a religion worthy of your days, let's have some church friends. I don't want unity with hateful people. November 9,020, John Pavlitz again. I don't want unity with hateful people. Unity. That's the word I hear a lot right now. In the wake of an election that is still being inexplicably contested by Donald Trump and surrogates and supporters, I'm being asked to show unity with his supporters to extend some instant olive branch of understanding that magically bridges that carbonous gas gap between us one once he's re, he's revealed and he's still actively cultivating i'm sorry but that isn't something i'm willing to offer unconditionally and without caveat we've been at this for five years it isn't as though i haven't been working tireless to understand and to reach these people to appeal to their sense of decency to illuminate the damage they're doing to oppress and marginalize human beings and invite them into something more redemptive they have chosen him again, and so I know quite a bit of them, which is why I am so aware that we do not have any meaningful points of affinity. I am deeply invested in the work of building this far-right community and navigating differences and seeing the inherent commonalities of our shared humanity. I've made that my life's work for three decades as a pastor and activist, but there are limits to what this means. Yes, I am burdened to bring diverse people together. Yes, I am called by my faith to care for all human beings in my path. Yes, I'm propelled to really see them individually and to value their specific stories, but I'm not obligated to have unity with hateful people. I am not morally bound to make peace with a heart that dehumanizes other human beings because of the color of their skin, their nation of origin, their gender, their orientation. And to have embraced Donald Trump now is to unapologetically brandish such a polluted heart, to be actively perpetuating inequity and stoking division and manufacturing discrimination in this very moment. I steadfastly refuse such an, such an alliance. I am a loud, conscientious objector in their war against the world. His movement is singularly focused on causing injury to vulnerable people and to suddenly declare unity with his base would be a betrayal of those who they consistently brutalize, both personally, collectively, and legislatively. It would be a slap in the face to migrant children, to people of color, to LGBTQI plus human beings, to Muslims, to people with disabilities, to non-Christians, and to women. For me to suddenly allow the willing and joyous perpetrators of their wounds proximity to me in the name of some ceremonial unity. Racists and bigots see other human beings as less than human for an unchangeable part of who they are, and I will not descend into that. I can fully see that humanity and still called them out for thinking and speaking and acting inhumanely. And I can show them decency and simultaneously declare myself distinct from the, from the malevolence they affirm and want to live the distance from me. People of faith, morality, and conscience are not required to make peace with hatred. They are not indebted to racism and bigotry and phobic violence. The call to love our enemies does not, does not necessitate abiding their in enmity. The only thing you owe violent people is to see and respect their humanity in ways they refuse for others, but you are not required to see their hatred as acceptable. You don't owe hateful people unity ever.
opinion, Patrick Wilson, June 15, 2021. Just because you believe the Bible says it doesn't settle it. Perhaps you've heard someone say, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. On the brink of the upcoming Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting, it appears that Baptists is continuing to wrestle with diverse perspectives on how to read, interpret, and apply the biblical text as illustrated by this bumper sticker theology. Recent and current debates in the SBC involve issues such as the power, such as the proper role of women in leadership, the appropriate response to racial inequality, the alignment and intertwining of political and religious leaders and their causes, the degree of welcoming and acceptance of the LGBTQI plus community, and the addressing of sexual misconduct slash abuse in churches and among pastors. Unfortunately, many turn to the pages of the Bible not just for guidance, but for ammunition to tout the superiority of their own views and to undermine their opponents. Often their reasoning is expressed succinctly. The Bible clearly says blank, uh, in parentheses, my view, and quotation marks. Therefore, anyone who holds a different view is unbiblical, immoral, inaccurate, or just plain wrong. To use the Bible in this way is an oversimplification at best and a lazy or arrogant generalization at worst. The author of Hebrews challenges us to see the word of God, Logos, as a breathing life force that is actively effective to penetrate into the depths of each of us, bringing conviction and discernment to our lives as we engage in rational interaction with the spirit of God. As human beings, we are dependent on the divine presence of the Lord's spirit to enable us to interpret and apply God's guidance to our lives. While others serve as navigators in the Christian journey, Jesus Christ is the only adequate criterion by which all scripture is appropriately interpreted and applied. For many Christ followers, the Bible is a sacred text. The Bible comes from God, and therefore its inspiration comes from the sinless and holy nature of God. Yet squabbles over inerrancy lose substantive value, those look at the contamination of the scriptures by frail and sinful humans. Humans transmitted, wrote, transcribed, translated, and interpreted the Bible. To suggest that a particular translation, commentator, scholar, pastor, even one's own personal understanding of scripture is infallible is a prideful aberration to the humble way of Jesus. So in the midst of great turbulence in culture and religious unrest, let me suggest these grounding principles. First, celebrate God's providence. God always has been, is, and will always be the source of true inspiration. All the Bible is God's word, but God's word is not all in the Bible. Let me repeat. First, celebrate God's providence. God always has been, is, and will always be the source of true inspiration. All of the Bible is God's word, but God's word is not all in the Bible. From its opening pages, we are awed by the all-powerful and life-giving word of God. When the Lord speaks, big things happen. Therefore, we are completely dependent on God to deliver guidance, understanding, and application from the pages of Scripture into the attitudes and actions of our lives. The very same God who inspired the biblical text is necessary to implement its meaning properly. One more time. All of the Bible is God's word, but God's word is not all in the Bible. Second, leave room for human frailty. Much fruitless debate centers around the inerrancy of biblical transmission. While the transmitter of revelation is without error, the receivers of that transmission are flawed. Human authors joined with the Spirit of God to receive, write, edit, transcribe, translate, and interpret the Bible. The involvement of human beings brings our inclusion in our frailty. Thus, God is infallible, but my understanding of God is limited and incomplete.
athletes. Third, maintain space for diversity. As we approach the Bible, we are wise to avoid clinging too tightly to our current interpretations. The Bible is far more than a quote-unquote instruction manual that we turn to on an occasion for troubleshooting the world around us. The Bible is a meta-narrative of a universal story, drawing us into the ever-increasing affection of our Creator. In that relational call, we find our own uniqueness in the, indivi- in the individuality of God's love affair with us that is as special as our DNA knit together by divine design. We are wise to leave room for the Spirit to work in our lives and to speak to us all through the biblical texts in personal profound ways. Fourth, seek to understand the literature. The Bible has a special principal purpose, but it utilizes a wide spectrum of, mechanic, of mechanisms to usher us into the transformational presence of the Lord. Attempting to read the biblical text through Western eyes through a modernized culture excuse our understanding of the context of the Bible and its teaching. The Bible never will mean what it never meant, and so we must do the diligent work of study, research, and exploration to engage with the beautiful splendor of the Bible's imagery, symbolism, poetry, par- parallelism, metaphor, simile, genre, language, style, and other literary aspects that lead to greater awareness of its meaning and application. Fifth, remain humble. The Bible is much more than a one-size-fits-all document. While broad in scope, the Bible intentionally avoids providing a specific step-by-step scenario for life events. Thus, we should personally abstain and refuse to follow biblical teachers who espouse a self-righteous, egocentric arrogance in regard to biblical interpretation. No one has the lock, stock, and barrel on God. The Bible of Christian ethics, Lord, is bigger and vaster than we can fully than we can fully comprehend. Humility is essential to a teachable spirit and to growth in Christ. Finally, prioritize inclusion. If we err, it always should be on the side of mercy, grace, and acceptance. The fear of a slippery slope of perceived unbiblical doctrines oftentimes is smokescreen to avoid the painful yet rewarding experience of extending God's royalty, he said, kingdom, to all people in the fulfillment of the great commandment. Jesus always made space for others, sinners though they be, as he says. And if we're going to be his followers, we must prioritize being more like Jesus and the Pharisees. Hence, our first and lasting relational response to those we differ with should be neither do I condemn you rather than go and sin no more. Emphasizing where we stand as individuals, churches, or convention on our moral interpretation of scripture only isolates others from mutually edifying conversation and collaboration in the kingdom. At the end of the day, I'd much rather treat people right than be right. Perhaps that is the most difficult thing that could be said. At the end of the day, I'd rather I much At the end of the day, I'd much rather treat people right than be right. At the end of the day, I'd much rather treat people right than be right. Perhaps that's the most biblical thing that could be said. Perhaps that is the most biblical thing that could be So... Then it will say, Opinion, Rusty, May 25th, 2021. Are you sure the Bible actually says that? These may, the Bible says, these may be the most dangerous words in the world because people say this all the time and sometimes I have no idea what they are talking about. 
as a pastor, you know, I'm supposed to know what the Bible says. It's not at all uncommon for someone to ask something like, Preacher, where does the Bible say a penny saved is a penny earned? Oh, my. The Bible says when we die, our bodies go on the ground and our souls come out of our bodies and go up to heaven. Except this is not at all what it says. Read Paul's extensive discussion of resurrection, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. When you die... The earthly body is buried and a new spiritual body comes to life. Train is good Hebrew. There's no disembodied life for Paul. Now, I don't know exactly what a quote-unquote spiritual body is, how it might differ from the ghostly soul that is common in our popular imagination and in too much preaching, but the dualism of body versus soul is absent in Paul's theology. Thou shalt not have sex before marriage is not in the Bible. As a good Southern Baptist preacher's kid, I thought this was one of the Ten Commandments. I lived by it in reverent adolescent loathing, and it's probably not a bad standard as a straightforward command the Bible says, however, it's just not there. There are exhortations to sexual fidelity, admonitions against sexual indiscretion, truths on which an ethic of commitment in relationship can be based, but quote-unquote fornication meant something very different in a culture where polygamy was common than it means in the religiosity of quote-unquote true love wait i'm not a historian but i suspect there may be a correlation there i'm not a historian but i suspect there may be a correlation to the rise of an absence on the ethic and the development of the birth control pill When we go to heaven, we will see our loved ones and know them just as they were. Where? Where does it say this in the Bible? It does not. Not at all. The closest you can get is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Heaven, a great family reunion in the sky? Hardly. It's not even clear Paul is speaking of the afterlife, even if you're trying to read the text literally. When complete comes, I shall know fully. There's no mention of afterlife or heaven. The text is better understood as referring to a conversion of spiritual clarity. When the complete comes in that moment, whenever it comes, I will know myself. I will, quote, unquote, see other people more clearly. Jesus goes a step further when the Sadducees ask about the woman who, according to law regarding leverate marriage, had taken seven brothers as her husband. They want to know which will be her husband in the resurrection. This would have been a perfect opportunity to say, she will know them all, or something like that. Instead, Jesus says, you are wrong. And the resurrection is either men or given in marriage, but like angels in heaven. Whatever heaven is, according to Jesus, you're not going to know or need to know your spouse. Why is this important? I'm not trying to take away anyone's Bible, destroy anyone's faith. Biblical truth has been essential to my understanding for all the 57 years I've had any understanding. I'm not writing about afterlife theology. I'm not concerned about how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. What the Bible says, especially in the minds of misinformed Americans, is not an esoteric concern reserved for pointy-headed academics or self-righteous Bible thumpers. Biblical literacy, the willing gullibility and dangerous naivete of vast swaths of the American populace ought to be of grave concern to us all. 
what the Bible says carries a great deal of weight, even our increasingly secular society. What the Bible says has become a critical weapon in the culture war that has turned the nation apart, largely destroying the integrity of the church and thinking Christians in the process. Again, the Bible says maybe the most dangerous phrase in the world. In 2015 survey by YouGov, a for-profit research firm, 41% of respondents said that people and dinosaurs lived together. Another 16% were not sure. When that much of the population is that far removed from understanding and accepting reality, the preoccupation with hobby horses in heaven is the least of our concerns. So-called literal interpretations of the Bible legitimize slavery and continue to justify racial injustice as well as the subjugation of women the condemnation of homosexuals, the destruction of the environment, the alienation of the immigrant, judgment and exclusion and violence, all in the name of God. The Bible says maybe the most dangerous phase in the world for a fearful church armed with political influence and access to the nuclear codes. Maybe thermonuclear war are mutually assured destructionist prophecy? We know the Bible says The word of God may not be what you think it is, tradition, scripture, and the word of the Lord, opinion, Chuck Queen, September 2015. Too often scriptures contrast with tradition on the basis that scripture is the word of God, while tradition is of human origin, not so. In its biblical and theological usage, tradition simply means what it's handed on. In this sense, our Christian scriptures are part of our Christian tradition. Paul tells Corinthians, I commend you because you remember me and everything and maintain the traditions just as I handed them on to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul is someone writing in Paul's name said, So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by our letter. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15. Paul is referring to the teachings and practices he passed on to the churches. So tradition is not bad. Tradition is necessary. There would be no Christian community without Christian tradition. The biblical theological meaning of tradition includes our sacred texts our sacred practices and the ways we have interrupted and the ways we have interpreted made use of our texts and practices. Is Christian tradition of human origin? Indeed, and this includes our Christian scriptures. Whatever biblical inspiration may or may not mean, our sacred texts emerged out of particular historical contexts and were the result of cultural and historical human processes. It is extremely important to understand that the word of God is not limited or confined to sacred texts. The word of God is dynamic reality, not static. As such, the word of the Lord transcends scripture. A scriptural document, a biblical text, whether it's the book of Deuteronomy, the Gospel of Mark, or an epistle of Paul, represents a particular stage in faith communities and evolving faith. A biblical text is a developing tradition frozen in time. The word of God, however, is fluid and cannot be fixed forever at a point in time. The word of God is God acting in time, which for God is the eternal now. The word of God is God speaking, revealing, convicting, judging, wooing, loving, and engaging our world and our personal lives right now in non-coercive, non-manipulative, and always in life-enhancing ways. The word of God is God continuously interacting with the creation. This is why James says that we're giving birth, we are regenerated, given new life by the word of truth, verse, chapter 1, verse 18. James is talking about the regenerating activity of the spiritual presence and power of God in our lives. 
this is what the author papers talk about when he says that quote unquote the word of god is living and active a written text and frozen is frozen and fixed and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart both of the above texts are referencing a divine presence and activity that transcends scripture is is god's regenerative activity mediated through scripture certainly is god generating power limited and restricted to scripture certainly not it's important to keep in mind that the early Christians lived in an oral culture where there were few written texts. Very few could read and write, and writing materials were expensive. Christian traditions were passed down orally. These traditions were interpreted and adapted to ever-changing circumstances. They were constantly evolving, taking on new forms, and finding new expressions. The written texts reflect this oral tradition fixed in time. Although their evolving faith became fixed in time through a written text, their faith never stopped evolving, nor showers. Unfortunately, the church at large has not done a very good job helping people understand this. In fact, some of our practices have muddied the waters and left false impressions. For example, a tradition in many churches is to say, after the scriptures read, this is the word of the Lord. Is it the word of the Lord? Not literally, no. Hopefully it could be a meeting through which the word of the Lord comes to the congregation, but that means to be seen, doesn't it? That would depend on how the scriptures presented to the congregation, how it is interpreted and proclaimed. And it will depend on the congregation's readiness and willingness to receive and act on that word. The scripture is a medium for the word of God, but it is not literally the word of God. We cannot emphasize enough how important this distinction is. If a believer or faith community fails to make this distinction, then the likelihood that they will revere a written text over the living God increases. God can never be captured by or restricted to a text. When Jesus charged the religious leaders with making the book, when Jesus charges the religious leaders with making void the word of God in Mark chapter 7 verse 13, he's not saying that they are nullifying scripture itself, rather he's charging them with making void or nullifying the will and purpose of God as it is understood and expressed through scripture. These religious leaders were interpreting and applying their faith traditions in ways that opposed God's good will and purpose, thus revealing their hypocrisy and lack of authenticity. The critical question is not what is tradition and what is scripture. Scripture itself is part of our Christian tradition. The critical question is, what is behind our interpretations and appropriations of our Christian traditions? What motivates, inspires, guides, and directs our use of our Christian traditions? Are we adapting, expressing them in healthy, transformative ways as part of our own dynamic, evolving faith? Do we emphasize those texts and traditions that take us three steps forward, or do we fixate on those that take us three steps back? The religious leaders that Jesus confronts in Mark chapter 7 were using their sacred traditions to actually subvert what was clearly God's will. They used their traditions to justify their lack of compassion and greed. They tried to convince others, having already convinced themselves, that what they were actually doing demonstrated how holy and devoted they were, when in reality it showed just the opposite. Jesus zeroes in, zeroes in on where the real problem lies, for it is from within. From the human heart, the evil intentions come. Mark chapter 7, verse 21. In the heart is where good and evil originate. What is allowed to sow in our hearts greatly impacts how we use our sacred traditions. An unconverted person, and by that I mean someone who has not expressed significant heart change, will use their Christian traditions in unhealthy, destructive ways. On the other hand, converted persons whose hearts are honest, humble, and open to change will make use of the same Christian traditions in healthy, life-affirming ways. Persons being transformed by the word of the Lord can readily acknowledge the petty, punitive, and oppressive biblical texts that are part of their Christian tradition. Texts like 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 to 15. But such persons will not allow such texts to shape or influence their, their own evolving faith. 
For example, one might argue that 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 through 15 reflects a post-Pauline backlash against the Apostle Paul's more egalitarian theology and practice, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, Romans chapter 16, and one might find other interpretations more convincing. But however, such a text is interpreted, it is not allowed to trump a commitment to liberation and equality, which is grounded in other scriptures such as the Jesus traditions and the Gospels. The call to pursue liberation for the oppressed and equality for all is received as the living word of God. I can't imagine reading. I can't imagine someone reading First Timothy chapter two verse eleven through fifteen in the contemporary church and then saying after reading, "This is the word of the Lord." No, it is not. Certainly not today. And I seriously doubt if it functioned as the word of the Lord in that day and time as well. Texts and practices are healthy and unhealthy, true and false, liberating and slaving are all part of our Christian tradition. We must discern the difference. One whose heart is open to the unconditional love of God will be able to quote quote test everything and quote quote hold fast to what is good. First Thessalonians chapter five verse twenty one. A converted person will be able to hear the word of the Lord in both the good and bad of their tradition. The Bible has answers, but it's not a magic eight ball. Opinion Mark Whitfield, May 7th, 2020. One of the most common questions Christians ask is this, what is God's will for my life? And that question is followed often by a corollary, what does God want me to do about this specific situation? Which often leads to a third question, what does the Bible say about this issue I'm facing? These were the questions posed to me last week by lovely couples seeking relationship advice. The couple met ironically in a Bible study group at another church where they were seeking to learn more about God and how to be quote-unquote closer to God. Now they have some questions that they don't see represented in the Bible, but like so many Christians, they suspect they just haven't searched the Bible hard enough and don't know it well enough to find the answers they're looking for. So they've tracked down a professional Christian, me, who presumably knows the Bible more fully and can quote the chapter and verse they seek. What the couple seeks and what most Christians seek is to use the Bible like an encyclopedia or in more modern terms, like a Google re like a Google search, answer your query, what does the Bible say about dating? You see the answers quickly populate with hyperlinks and references. For many Christians, that's the expectation of Bible study, learning to turn the pages, whether literally or online, and find the secret messages. Within evangelical Christianity, the culture of my birth and life, we are taught to begin any quest for knowledge by consulting the Bible. In the most extreme form, some sects, as you see, TS, within Christianity, turn the Bible to a primary textbook for all subjects, learning language, teaching social work, charting world history. But even those of us who look to the Bible primarily as a book of theology rather than anything else are susceptible to a kind of Bible idolatry that is dangerous. Biblicism is the fancy word given to the root of this problem. Its dangers have been addressed by mainstream evangelical and even reformed writers. Biblicists see the Bible as a flat text with equal authority given to, all, given to all passages. They also tend to believe there's a Bible verse somewhere to answer every question imaginable. Biblicism turns the Bible to a magic eight ball. Remember those childhood semi-occultic toys? The black ball you shake up and ask a question and the block inside turns this way and that until an answer is revealed. Biblicists treat the Bible just like that. Just keep turning the pages to find an answer to all of life's questions. The problem is the Bible doesn't assert that power for itself. 
Nowhere in scripture is a claim made that answers to all questions may be found here. At this point, make way to counsel the Count Arkham side of 2 Timothy. All scripture is, God, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Chapter 3, verse 16, King James Version, King James That passage makes a theological claim, not a claim on science or medicine or world history or physics or engineering or banking. It says that scripture, which in this case would be a reference to the Hebrew scriptures, because the New Testament had not been fully written and canonized, it's helpful to understand doctrine and to instruct readers in righteousness. So why then do we continue to force the Bible to be something it's not? The answer, I believe, is because in a world of uncertainty, turning to the Bible as a single source of all authority makes us feel better. Have you ever noticed how often the daily blogs or other devotional materials that get ordered to you rely on this kind of biblicism? I can think of several pastors and writers who have built their entire reputations on appearing to know the Bible in such depth, D-P-T-H, that they easily plumb its depths on demand for any and all answers. This approach goes something like this. You have asked me whether you should get a butterfly tattoo. Let's see what the Bible says about that. Or like this, as economic uncertainty looms around us, let's start asking what counsel the Bible has for us on investing today. I'm not saying the Bible has no answers at all. What I'm saying is that there are many areas of our lives that the Bible says nothing about, nothing at all. If you're going to make the Bible your first line research source for all questions, great and small, at least have the honesty to admit, to admit it when your magic eight ball quest through the black leather bound volume comes back with reply hazy, try again. In modern life, we encounter many things the Bible does not just speak to in any way. Things such as the internet, space travel, DNA, health insurance, Mexican food, any attempt to cite chapter verse on such things is laughable. But in other areas where Christians assert biblical authority despite none existing, danger lurks. Here's where evangelical biblicism does true harm to everyone who does not appear to be just like quote unquote us. What the Bible does do, it does claim for itself, is to teach us principles that can be adapted to many circumstances. Remember that old saw about helping the poor? Give a man a fish and you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. The same is true with the Bible. The healthiest long-term means of spiritual discernment is not to gain an encyclopedic knowledge of the Bible, but to understand its overall teaching, its art, its story of God's relationship with us. This is the very concept of our children's Sunday school curriculum. Remember how, as a child, you memorize key verses? There's a reason those specific verses were children to our heads. They are the keystones to understand the big picture of the Bible and God's will for our lives. For example, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning, God created, teaches that God is the beginning of all things. Or John chapter 3, verse 16, God so loved the world, teaches that God's desire for us is salvation in Jesus Christ. Or in Macca, chapter 6, verse 8, what does the world require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and walk humbly with God? Gives a simple summation of all the Hebrew prophets. In the same way, when Jesus himself was asked to sum up God's plan, so he quoted the Son of Scripture. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you want to know God's will for your life, start here reading Matthew 8 Paul on Shell. Why being transgender is not a sin. Opinion, Mark Wingfield, November 9, 2018. 
I recently met a lovely young family in the northern suburbs of Dallas. They told me they previously attended a large Baptist church there until their high school sons became their daughter. The mother's committed to her volunteer work in the church, and when she told the pastor who supervised that ministry area that her child was transgender, the pastor said, that's fine. We love everybody here, but it's still a sin. Blah, 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 but. Whatever comes after the but always negates whatever nice things were said in the first part of the sentence. Beware of the but. Some would look kindly on the suburban pastor's response because after all, the pastor didn't kick the family out of the church or condemn the teenager straight to hell. But even among Christians who appear kind of progressive, too often the existence of someone who identifies as transgender gets chalked up to quote-unquote sin. No doubt that the root reason so many Christians happily pile on against transgender persons and family members about bathrooms and schools because in their heart of hearts, they don't understand transgender identity and simply default to thinking it is a sinful lifestyle choice. I think we can all agree that a quote-unquote sin is something we do that we should do, something we have a choice about. If I eat an entire half gallon of ice cream, I am likely guilty of the sin of gluttony. I didn't have to eat the ice cream. If I fixate on why other people are more athletic and agile than me in my mind-life body, I am probably am guilty of the sin of envy. There's a way for me to re redirect my thoughts to avoid envy. The same is not true of transgender identity. Emphatically and conclusively, this is not a choice. It's who a person is. Did you choose to have red hair? Did you choose to be tall or short? Did you choose to have the genetic markers you have? Of course not. Transgender persons are simply acknowledging that their gender... The same is not true of transgender identity. Emphatically and conclusively, this is not a choice. It's who a person is. Did you choose to have red hair? Did you choose to be tall or short? Did you choose to have the genetic markers you have? Of course not. Transgender persons are simply acknowledging that the gender identity assigned to them at birth because of physical anatomy does not match the brain, biochemical, and, gender, and genetic gender identity they know inside. Since writing a column a few years ago about understanding transgender identity, an opinion article that has been read more than one million times and led to giving a TED talk on the same subject, I have conversed with hundreds of transgender persons and family members of transgender persons. That's not just mysteriously speaking, it really has been hundreds. Every one of those transgender persons has told me that they knew from their earliest awareness from the time they were four or five or six years old that the gender anatomy they showed on the outside did not match who they knew they were on the inside. There is an increasing body of scientific evidence to back up this assertion. For example, a 2008 study published in the Archives of Sexual Behavior found that female fetuses with increased prenatal exposure to androgens are more likely to have gender nonconforming behavior. Researchers, including some theologically conservative ones, point to environmental factors that may be responsible for the fetus being increased in transgender identity and endocrine disruption beginning in the 20th century. This is linked to industrialization, development of new chemicals, and medicine. But these environmental factors only explain an increase not the presence of transgender identity, which has been documented for centuries. The American Academy of Pediatrics, not to be confused with a smaller association of conservative pediatricians, often cited by critics of transgender rights, recently released a new policy statement explaining that variation of gender identity is a normal part of human diversity. 
for an excellent lay-friendly description of the emerging science of transgender identity, look to this report from Harvard University. I could quote chapter verse to study after study, and that would not change the minds of some people who are determined to label as something. I'm sorry. I could quote chapter verse for study after study, and that would not change the minds of some people who are determined to label as sinful anything they do not understand, usually because the Bible says so. In these cases, I ask people, tell me where in the Bible being transgender is condemned as sinful. The only answer usually offered is Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 5, which says, a, a woman shall not wear a man's apparel, nor shall a man put on a woman's garments. Whoever does such things is abhorrent to the Lord your God. Here's the problem with even a literal reading of that passage. Transgender persons will tell you they are not men putting on women's clothing or women putting on men's clothing. Instead, they're declaring an identity much deeper than clothing. They are saying that they are dressing outwardly to match who they know they are on the inside. This is not cross-dressing, which is not the subject of this column. Cross-dressing is about finding pleasure in wearing certain clothes. Being transgender is about finding mental and spiritual peace by aligning outward presentation with inner being. Occasionally, people will point to Genesis chapter 1 to 27 as a condemnation of transgender identity. Male and female, he created them. Most transgender persons tell you they believe God has in fact created them as either male or female. The problem is how they have been labeled by others who are not God. Some people today identify as gender fluid, meaning they find, meaning they find in themselves bits of both male and female identity and cannot def definitely say they're one or the other. What, while this may sound unsettling to some, while this may sound unsettling to some of us on first hearing, a return to Genesis might help. There we also learn that God created both night and day and that God separated land from sea. Yet we have no problem saying the existence of dawn and dusk or marshes and everglades. Also the point of Genesis 1 is inclusion, not exclusion. The ancient text tells us that God created everything and not or. The other lesson we need to keep learning from Genesis is that all humanity is created in the image of God. Everybody without exception. When we look at others who are different than us and try to see them in the image of God, we gain new understanding and empathy. Sometimes well-meaning Christians get this part but still can't get over the quote-unquote sin label. But they will say things like, all of us are sinners in God's eyes, and it's just that my sin is different from your sin. Or, from off the top of my head, they say, I just may sin differently than you. That's another way of saying I love you, but... There's an easy way to remember why this is wrong. Transgender identity is about who a person is. It's about their fun it's about their fundamental being as humans created by God, God's image, an image that God has declared to be good. My quest to find the word homosexual in the Bible, opinion at Oxford, August 10, 2020. I was born and raised in the Southern Baptist Church by two incredibly amazing parents who dearly loved the Lord. It was a great experience. I remember Sunday school and training and contributing to Lottie Moon and Arnie and Annie Armstrong for foreign and home missions and many other traditions that still bring fond memories. My heart for missions began as a kid in that SBC church and ultimately resulted in answering God's call to help fulfill the Great Commission by serving overseas in Japan. 
I later returned stateside and enrolled in Talbot Seminary to grow my understanding of God's Word. It was my Southern Baptist roots where I gained a deep appreciation for Scripture. My heart's desire was to be my part in spreading the gospel. I wanted to share Christ and disciple others and was gearing up for a lifetime of furthering the kingdom of God, but I was gay. God can't use me. Having heard many sermons throughout my life, I was convinced God did not want me, nor could God use me. I was an abomination. I was quote-unquote damaged goods. I tried to change. Oh, I tried so hard. Prayer and fasting, reparative therapy. The only thing that changed was I experienced more and more depression. So I just held on to the hope that God would one day provide a way, some special pill, and accomplish therapist, or I would just miraculously wake up straight. Church taught me that gay people were horrible and nasty. They had an agenda. You know, the gay agenda. In my opinion, the gay and trans agendas are lovely agendas. Sign me up. It's called human rights. They wanted to destroy the family, all, and they wanted to destroy the family and ultimately the church. But this wasn't me. I didn't want to destroy. I didn't want to destroy the church. I love God's church. I love God with all my heart. I recognized in my teenagers that I was same-sex attracted. I thought it was just a stage I would grow out of. During college, I realized it was, I realized it was not going away. In fact, it was getting more intense. Depression continued. Pain, self-hatred. My Christian friends were angry with me that I wouldn't couldn't give up being gay. My gay friends were angry that I wouldn't give up on the church. I felt homeless. A revelation in Bible study. One day during my first Bible study devotion, I was reading Acts chapter 10 where Peter saw a vision of God letting a sheep descend with all kinds of unclean animals. Peter was disgusted by what he saw, but God told him not to call them disgusting because God created these things and God had made them clean. As I reflect on these words, a thought came to my mind, what if God was okay with gays? I immediately dismissed such a notion as horrible and satanically influenced. However, God's spirit continued to work on me, even seeming to offer the question, well, what would you do if an angel came down and told you that God was okay with you being gay? Kind of like Paul's Rose the Master experience. I was shocked. I cannot believe my mind entertained such a notion. The Bible is clear on this issue, so there's no room for debate. If I were to hear this from an angel, I would have written off as Satan disguising himself as an angel because I felt God's word was clear. Thus, I was declaring to God that the only way I would ever change my mind about homosexuality was if God showed me through scripture. In that moment, I, I had set a condition before God. In that moment, I had set a condition before God. God was going to have to convince me that scripture was teaching something different than what I, what I thought it was teaching. Digging into the Greek and Hebrew. About a decade later, after many episodes of extreme depression, I decided I wanted to dig into this with all my heart, soul, and mind. I wanted to know the truth regardless of what it entailed or revealed. I did not set out to prove or disprove any preconceived narratives. Instead, I only sought facts in order to weigh the evidence. I started with the Greek and Hebrew texts and realized I needed to study the historical context of each of these texts in order to clearly understand the passages. So I put my seminary training of Greek and Hebrew to work. One of the many things I discovered was that the English word homosexual 
was not in any Bible until 1946 when it appeared in the Revised Standard Version. I was shocked. I wanted to know who put it in there and how they came to that conclusion. My research led me to the Yale University archives where the RSV translation notes are held. In September 2017, I traveled to Yale with author researcher Kathy Baldock and spent many days searching for the words to the question. Why did this translation team make the historic decision to put the word homosexual in the Bible for the first time? The RSV translation team kept meticulous notes. We even found a grocery shopping list. This team of 22 men were extremely godly ahead of their time. The letters they left behind showed, a, showed how they encouraged churches and church leaders to include blacks and women on committees where important decisions were being made. Luther Allen Weigel, head of the RSV translation team, has been called the father of the modern Sunday school movement because he introduced a curriculum that could be used to teach children about Bible stories. He was a big advocate for missions in Japan and China. At one time, he received a letter from an elderly leader asking that he write Congress requesting the discontinuation of the poll tax. Citizens in her town were required to pay a dollar for a voter registration card, but poor families could not afford this and instead spent that one dollar on much needed food thus preventing their representation in elections. Legally, enthusiastically agreed and wrote a, letter to and wrote a letter to Congress. The answer in the archives. On the third day at Yale, we found the answer. After we got to know this wonderful team of translators, the answer was found in an exchange of letters between a seminary student and Weagle. The seminary student challenged the use of the word homosexual, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, and provided a detailed outline of his reasoning. Weagle responded and admitted that the translation team had indeed made a mistake and would seek to correct it in their next update. However, Weagle had just signed a contract saying that he would not make any changes in the RSV for 10 years. During those 10 years, translation teams were working on the translations of the first New American Standard Bible, the Living Bible, and New International Version Bible. We then went to research in the translation notes of the NSAB, TLB, and NIV Bibles. It turns out these versions used the RSV as their basis for including the word homosexual in their translations, not knowing that the RSV had retracted its decision. The RSV committee decided the word homosexual was an inaccurate translation of Malakoi and Arsenokotai in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 9 replaced it with sexual perverts. An example of sexual perverts would be a dirty old man exposing himself to children on the playground. The RSV team admitted that the Greek word arsenokotai was not condemning homosexuals, but instead those who were abusive in their pursuit of sexual encounters. Historical context of Paul's time. The historical context shows that pederasty, sex with slaves, temple prostitution, and other abusive forms of sex were prevalent in the first century when the Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. Even though the Bible contains six verses that appear to condemn homosexual activity, it contains more than 200 verses that condemn heterosexual activity. One more time. Even though the Bible contains six verses that appear to condemn homosexual activity, it contains more than 200 verses that condemn heterosexual activity. So as researchers, it is important for us to determine the type of homosexual or heterosexual activity being condemned. First century people had no context of same-sex committed monogamous relationships. Therefore, they would not be able to have the perspective we are able to see after 150 years of studying homosexuality. 
you might as well ask them what they thought about iPhones. They would have no frame of reference. But Paul definitely did not approve of the reprehensible same-sex activity that involved various abuses. Hence his words in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy. The three main English Bible versions of the 1970s, NASB, TLB, and IV, are the translations I grew up on. They are the most influential English translations in our lifetime. Since their publication some 40 years ago, we have seen the largest amount of teen and young adult suicide in the history of the world. How can this be? In part, it's because we have been given the wrong advice, advice shaped after the word homosexual entered the Bible. Since our time in the Yale archives, I've done an enormous amount of investigation. I traveled thousands of miles, spent tens of thousands of dollars on research, and interviewed hundreds of people. I ultimately realized that the evidence is incredibly overwhelming. I eventually had to admit that I had been wrong about homosexuality. I had to admit that my church and my denomination had been wrong about homosexuality. My Southern Baptist background taught me to approach Bible study as a Berean, and the Bereans in Acts chapter 17 would even, wouldn't even believe the Apostle Paul's words until they studied the scriptures and did their own due diligence. So for me to continue down the path of a non-affirming theology would have required me to discard the volumes of irrefutable facts I had, I had uncovered from intense research. We were wrong about slavery, too. All this reminds me of how we Southern Baptists made that atrocious mistake 200 years ago regarding slavery. Some Southern Baptist pastors felt that, felt that if we abolished slavery, we might as well do away with the New Testament because we wouldn't be following it anymore. They actually believed they were being obedient to God's word by holding on to slavery. Ridiculous, huh? Looking back from a 21st century perspective, we find it difficult to comprehend that pastors taught such things, but for them, it was real. It was a matter of following the misguided understanding of God's word or to hold on to slavery. So much damage has been done. Too many lives have been lost. I fixed this. The Bible says, Sermon Center Now, Opinion, Carl, Carol, April 13, 2021. Like many of you, I have a vivid memory of watching Billy Graham's charismatic oratory, oratory particularly crusade in Australia in April 1979. This platform catchphrase, the Bible says, still rings true even now. Some 50 years ago, I began an academic fascination with the public speech in the public space. Whether sermonic, secular, or panoply of all the above, I started learning the ways of speech criticism. I wanted to know how various speakers conceived, compiled, and delivered an address. The appeal to plan public speech still calls me today. Like many of you, I have heard thousands of speeches. Like many of you, I have heard thousands of speech events in the church space. From my seat in a church choir loft spanning 50 years, I watched his congregations respond with every imaginable non-personal expression, and in some ways I could imagine. I learned that each speech or sermon is never about the message of the presentation. The event, is all, the event is always about the audience. Even the smallest church's Sunday morning attendance. Can you imagine seven sitting in front of you? I know a pastor who sees this number nearly every Sunday. These attendees deserve the best effort as much as or more than several hundred in any established large downtown church post-pandemic. 
The quest for any viewers of congregation has always been the same since before the Great World War and after this. Lord, do the message have a word for me today? Orators of the past had a general speech plan, much like the ground game plan of legendary coach Woody Hayes of Ohio State University. Um, I want to make sure that um, I remember where I left off. So, I'll read the whole thing. The Bible says sermons then and now, opinion Carcal, April 13, 2021. Like many of you, I have a vivid memory of watching Billy Graham's charismatic oratory, particularly his crusade in Australia in April 1979. This platform catchphrase, the Bible says, still rings true even now. Some 50 years ago, I began an academic fascination with the public speech in the public space, whether sermonic, secular, or panoply of all the above. I started learning the ways of speech criticism. I wanted to know how various speakers conceived, compiled, and delivered naturally as the field of plain public speech still calls to me today. Like many of you, I have th- I've heard thousands of speech events in the church space. From my seat in the church choir law spending 60 years, I watched this congregation respond with every imaginable nonverbal expression in some ways I couldn't. Each speech or sermon is never about the message or the presentation. The event is always about the audience, even the smallest church's Sunday morning attendance. Can you imagine seven sitting in front of you? I know a pastor who sees this number nearly every Sunday. These attendees deserve the best effort as much as or more than several hundred in my established large downtown church post-pandemic. The question for any viewer slash congregation has always been the same since before the Great World War and after. Does the Lord through the message have a word for me today? Orators of the past had a general speech plan, much like the ground game plan of legendary coach Woody Hayes of Ohio State University. Three yards in a cloud of dust. Sermons then had a similar plan. Three main points often alliterative in form, an application and an altar call, a heart drive and fullback, a persuasive appeal for personal acceptance of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Oh, to be sure, the farther one drives south of the Ohio River. The sermonic drum beat of yesterday is still heard in every in, is still heard in nearly every evangelical church. As you know, there are countless new church footprints all over America that offer a different sermonic slash service experience. Sermons now, the possibilities seem endless. I have sampled or been exposed to new waves of sermon quote unquote talk. Some some could be characterized as conversational monologues called sermons that start somewhere and go nowhere. Far too often the pastor speaker has a point to make emanating out of personal experience by lining up story after story, thinking that stories like watching someone else's home movies will be informative and persuasive, they usually are not. Perhaps many of us have become wary of sermons and speakers as public words take off, try to land, and runs out of runway by 11.55 on Sunday morning. In Southern Baptist life, there are some 47,000 churches with 200 plus megachurches in the list that typically serve 150 or fewer members, often with about 50 members returning regularly post-pandemic. Doesn't every church member visitor deserve some return to a well-prepared traditional exposition or at least a better organized relevant sermon for today? Ask yourself, when was the last time you heard a pastor speak in a tone of phrase such as, the Bible says, 
When was the last time a sermon was arranged in such a way that you could take notes whenever and ponder the speaker's analysis or interpretation of what the Bible says? At the conclusion, I want to be inspired, surprised, amused, threatened, and called into account for the sins of omission and commission ways to make me sit up straight and feel motivated. Amidst all the swirling emotions generated by that well-crafted sermon, there should be a moment that makes the hours spent in a pew well worth the effort. Sermon should point us to what the Bible says about issues and problems we face every day. Then as the pastor uncovers ideas and points of view that lift the spirit, we begin to understand what the Bible's message is for us. Then as the sermon comes in for a landing close to the noon hour, two thoughts should come to mind. First, I never looked at life that way. Second, the listener nods approvingly, I never saw that coming. In contrast to the instant media mess in contrast to instant media answer for modern technology, I want to hear next Sunday a clear explanation of what quote unquote the Bible says. Hmm. Okay. Let's go to this one. If Jesus came to church today, opinion, Jonathan Davis, October 22nd, 2018, my entire life I've heard of pastors and Bible teachers clip about what would happen if Jesus came to church. Sometimes the, if Jesus came to church and there are pictures of Jesus showing up and turning over tables. Sometimes Jesus shows up as an, as an unidentified homeless man, likely shunned by the average churchgoer. Sometimes preachers even quit that if Jesus came today, we'd crucify him all over again. Occasionally use that last one in a sermon. Instead of crucifying him, however, we would execute him by lethal injection after assassinating his character in the media, spreading conspiracy stories online, indicting him on trumped up charges, and icing him on death row for 30 years. What would actually happen if Jesus came to church? I'm sure we would kick him out, but not before he turned over a few tables. On second thought, I'm not sure that the symbolic acts of turning over tables would get the message across to American church today. It's not nearly dramatic enough. No, if Jesus came to church today, he might turn over tables, probably those nice ones in the sanctuary foyer. But then he would break them apart with a sledgehammer and use them for firewood for homeless persons left outside in the cold. If Jesus came to church today, he would dismantle the pews one by one, removing them from the sanctuary so that people could stand in instead of sit. Jesus would much rather his church actually stand for something than pat lazy bottoms with cushy upholstery. The idea that people actually argue over the quality and quant and color of the upholstery would make him nauseous. He would have us walking out and going forth rather than sitting back and soaking up. If Jesus came to church today, he would strip the walls and ceilings of all the bronze and gilded ornaments. After he melted them down with the fire he built, he would sell the metal and give the proceeds to the poor. If Jesus came to church today, he would tear the bulletin in two. The only order of worship in heaven goes something like, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Revelation chapter 4, verses 8 and 11. In heaven, there are no last-minute pastors. Can you make an announcement about conversations or, pre or preludes? If Jesus came to church today, he would say something like, Let the little children come unto me. But he wouldn't stop there. He would add, let the refugee come unto me. Let the drug addict come unto me. Let the alcoholic come unto me. Let the immigrant come unto me. Let the LGBT plus person come unto me. Let the conservative come unto me. Let the progressive come unto me. Whoever we shun, whoever we silence, whoever we other, whoever we judge, Jesus invites into the circle. If Jesus came to church today, he would start a church-wide recycling program and lead the congregation to adopt solar energy. 
as the divine agent of creation itself, how could Jesus not care about the earth and its inhabitants? He would shake his head in wonderment and frustration at all who turn a blind eye towards the pressing need for creation care, sometimes using the Bible to justify their argument. He would change the Jewishship sermon series from being about counting beans to counting the cost of raping creation without consumerism and lust for cultural dominance. If Jesus came to church today, he would undoubtedly cancel most of the Come to Us events, the Easter Bunny, Bouncing House, Pumpkin Patch, Trump or Treat Candy Festival. He would wonder what people understand about if anyone comes to me and does not hate father, mother, wife, and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple, and whoever does not carry their cross to follow me cannot be my disciple. Luke chapter 14, verses 26 through 27. Any cross carrying, any cross carrying, cost counting, life laying down, sacrifice going on at the annual dunk a pastor, touch a truck, Christian wrestling monster truck, BMX Expo outreach event. If Jesus came to church today, he would get funny looks for not wearing a tie or not being white or not knowing all the words to our favorite hymns. After all, Amazing Grace wasn't written in Aramaic. For that matter, he'd probably get the cops calling him for having olive skin. I say he had black chocolate skin. He's black. A beard and a head covering if we're saying Allah instead of God. Oh, those pesky immigrants who flee violence, starvation, and oppression in search of freedom, but haven't bothered to learn English? On second thought, would Jesus come to church today if he did? The end result of execution by lethal injection would probably be out of the question. With our concealed weapons permit in our wallets and loaded handguns in our holsters, we'd probably shoot him in self-defense before the police arrived. The true gospel is social analysis. Robert P. Sellers, December 10, 2021. Several years ago, a mission team of laypersons preached a morning sermon at First Baptist Church of Abilene, Texas. They had just returned from completing medical and construction projects at a small Christian hospital in the mountains near Chihuahua, Mexico. Their stories of building much-needed medicine cabinets, relationships, repairing clinic doors and broken bodies, and salvaging discarded equipment and forgotten lives touched our affluent congregation profoundly. In one testimony, a family physician summarized how he viewed their missionary efforts in that needy setting. Some will call what we did the social gospel, I just call it obedience. This mention of the social gospel more than a decade ago highlights a misunderstanding that has been perpetuated by evangelical leaders and churches for a century. Quite recently, in fact, a friend told me that the true gospel is salvation of Jesus Christ and not just doing good works. Back then, the true gospel is social. As a personal aspect, of course, yet the, yet the implication of the true gospel is social. The first and greatest commandments love God with all our heart, soul, and mind. And for Christians, that means loving Jesus as the incarnate word, the human face of God. But the second mandate, as ultimately as the first, is to love our neighbors and love ourselves, Matthew chapter 22, verse 36 and 40, which grounds the social nature of the gospel in the person of Jesus himself. What is the social gospel? The Westminster Dictionary of Christian Theology describes the social gospel as a type of activist Protestantism, which arose in the late 19th and early 20th centuries in industrial urban North America. 
His classic definition, however, came from, from a participant in the movement itself. Theologian Sheila Matthews identified the social gospel as the application of the teaching of Jesus and the total message of Christian salvation to society, the economic life, and social institutions, as well as to individuals. More recently, in a conference at Colgate, Rochester, Crowson Divinity School, the oldest Baptist seminary in America, Susan Hill Lindley, explained how the social gospel differs both from secular efforts to help needy people and from Christian shepherds. Both the gospel distinguished on the one hand from general humanitarian work by the religious motivation behind its ideas and activities and its insistence on connecting social ideals with the kingdom of God, at least partially realizable in this world. On the other hand, the social gospel moves beyond traditional Christian charity by recognizing corporate identity, corporate structural sin and social salvation, as well as by expressing concern for individual sin, faith and responsibility. Shaler and Matthew's definition has stressed how the social gospel speaks to societal as well as the individual life challenges, the way Christians in the West often interpret the nature of discipleship. In a commitment to individualism, some American Christians think that being Jesus' father only affects one's personal relationship to God, and so they, so they neglect applying the gospel's demands to the larger world around them. Perhaps this cultural loyalty is the reason many sermons focus on pursuing the quote-unquote the deeper spiritual life of an individual believer rather than partnering with others to do God's work in the world. This theme of following Christ beyond oneself is resistant in Susan Lynn's leads assertion that in addition to individual sin, faith, and responsibility, the social gospel is concerned about corporate identity, corporate or structural sin, and social salvation. Perhaps many Christians, like my friend who talks about the true gospel, have associated the social gospel either with theological liberalism, secular humanitarian aid projects, or persons they know who express an aversion, even antagonism toward evangelism. If so, they perhaps will be surprised that the preeminent representative of the social gospel was Baptist pastor, professor at a Baptist seminary. A Christian who had a deep religious family heritage, a passion for helping needy people, and an eagerness to share with them his faith in Jesus Christ. He was Walter Rauschenbusch, considered by some to have been inherited by others a modern prophet. Walter Rauschenbusch, social gospeler. Walter was born in 1861 in Rochester, New York, the son of Carolina August Rauschenbusch, German immigrants who came to the United States 15 years before his birth. As one historian explains in the mid-19th century, thousands of German immigrants are pouring into the new world to live in its tenements and work in its sweatshops or join the lines of its unemployed. August Rauschenbusch didn't work in a sweatshop or move his family into a tenement house, however. According to Christopher Evans, professor of the history of Christianity at Boston University, Soon after immigrating to the United States, August broke ranks with a deeply rooted family heritage of German Lutheranism to embrace conservative Baptist pietistic tradition. A shift which eventually secured the German Baptist missionary respected professorship teaching German at the Rochester Theological Seminary. It was there near the campus of the small Baptist school where young Rosenberg spent his childhood. Under the influence of his family, his church and his seminary, teenage Walter became a Christian. The experience about which he later wrote was of everlasting value to me. It turned me permanently, and I thank God with all my heart for it. It was a tender, mysterious experience that influenced my soul down to its depths. After his conversion, Walter attended high school back in his second homeland of Germany, where he became fluent in German, and also wrote letters home to his father in Latin and Greek. When he returned to Rochester, he was a mature young man, brilliant, serious, and committed to finding where God wanted him to serve. Living at home, he attended the University of Rochester, then later the seminary where his father taught on the campus that was his boyhood playground. For two summers, he did what so many young ministry candidates have done. 
He served as student pastor of a small Baptist congregation, one located in Kentucky. Later upon, graduate, later upon graduating from the seminary, his concern from the loss almost took him to India as a foreign missionary. But as many of his biographers have commented, in 1886, Walter became another kind of missionary as a 25-year-old pastor of the Second German Baptist Church in New York City, a small congregation located on the edge of a slum called Hell's Kitchen. According to Evans, it was the $600 a year ministry to 143 German working class Baptists that served as the greatest ones in shaping Roger Bush's theology and his orientation towards social reform. William Ramsey explains about his experience claiming, Roger Bush's social concern was not developed in his university study of Hegelian philosophy. No one so undertaken the factory job that they had to walk the streets every night as prostitutes. He told of an old man he knew who was hit by a streetcar. When the old man could not pay for his medical care, he was rejected from a nearby hospital and taken in the middle of the night by a boat to a charity hospital where he got gangrene and soon died. The streetcar company settled with his wife for $100. After all, they said her husband wasn't earning much in the first place and was so old he wouldn't even make that small amount much longer. Hence, it was not from the ethics class that the young minister's passion for social reform developed. During seminary, Walter had thought that his Christian calling was to preach the gospel and bring individuals to salvation in Jesus Christ. But after living alongside the poor people of Hell's Kitchen for 11 years, he felt that his call also required him to minister to the victims of social indifference, political corruption, and economic greed. It shook him that the slum landlords and sweatshop owners he knew were often sincere Christians, faithfully worshiping in fashionable churches while around them slum children were dying of malnutrition and the diseases poverty brings oddly many rich christians saw nothing incongruous about their comfortable lives in contrast to the pitiful existence of the poor some of them some of them had no doubt read an 1889 book titled the gospel of wealth published by industrialist andrew carnegie in which he argued that god ordained some people to make lots of money and others not to fare so well the rich were responsible for taking care of the poor who didn't know how to use money wisely anyway. Even more disastrously, notes historian Bill Leonard, it was a Baptist pastor, Russell Conwell, whose popular sermon, Acres of Diamonds, were responsible for justifying and even sanctifying the materialistic desires of so many Protestant Christians in the late 19th century. In his frequent appearances in conservative churches, Conwell declared, every good man ought to be rich. Every good man, every good man would be rich if he has as much common sense as goodness. I say, get rich, get rich. Walter Rauschenbusch, like a number of other young social-minded past scholars, rejected his teaching, which he considered an aberration of the gospel and accommodation to the culture of materialism and the laissez-faire capitalism of the industrial age. In response, Leonard notes, Walter emerged one of the chief representatives of what came to be known as the social gospel movement, an effort to take seriously the corporate nature of sin and the need to Christianize the social order itself. His first published exposition of this, of this theology of social Christianity was a May 1904 article ironically titled The New Evangelism. For even this first outline of his social gospel ideas, Roger Bush could not forsake his inherent commitment to evangelism. Thus writes Evans, he took an aim at those who saw Christian evangelism merely as a matter of personal conversion. What we needed in the church was a new model of evangelism that would bring persons in touch with the nation's social economic sins caused by late 19th century industrialization.
Ross' first article generally well received, but he wasn't prepared for his ever in increasing visibility and stature. Just 14 years later, at the time of his death in 1918, he was the undisputed spokesperson for the social gospel movement. His books, Christianity and the Social Crisis, 1907, Prayers of the Social Awakening, 1910, Christianizing the Social Order, 1912, and Theology for the Social Gospel, 1917, had sold tens of thousands of copies of multiple printings. He had become, writes Evans, one of the most visible Protestant leaders in the United States who regularly crisscrossed the country speaking about the social gospel. His life, and especially his ideas, undergirded a movement that helped to shape the thought of Christian leaders in the early 20th century. While after his death, the convictions he championed continued to challenge numerous international church leaders and social reformers, most notably Martin Luther King Jr. Further comments on the social gospel. The growing popularity of the social gospel in the early 20th century pre precipitated a reaction from more traditional Christian leaders and institutions. Compton Christianity and American scholars from Harvard University's Ferguson Project point to the growing antagonism towards this new model of evangelism. They summarize, while theological conservatives drew upon traditions associated with revivalism, which tended to emphasize its moral reform of individuals, theological liberals called for reconstruction of the social order itself, and since that Christians needed to address directly in Christian terms the new realities of urban industrial life. They found an article voice of Walter Rothschild's Bush who transformed the biblical idea of the kingdom of God into a vision of the progressive Christian transformation of America into a co cooperative Christian society. Roger Bush's vision of cooperative Christian society is radically different from the theocracy that some conservatives want to establish where America's laws are being made to agree with God's laws and serve by conservative Christians. Conversely, the social gospel Roger Bush advocated imagining a social order where diverse voices should be heard, different perspectives could be respected, and distinctive and distinctive contributions to a transformed and just society would be welcome. The liberal understanding of the kingdom of God is still an anathema to conservative Christians today. A reaction to the social gospel is particularly offensive comes from the website Reformation Charlotte. With the recent rise of progressive Christianity in the last few years, it's no surprise that one of the prevailing themes of social justice. Now, colloquially, that's the quote-unquote woke movement. Many denominations have been caught up in the movement forever. But social justice is not the gospel saying that it is. The gospel is heresy. Walter Archibald was an American Baptist pastor and theologian lived during the late 1800s, early 1900s. Late 1800s, early 1900s, he taught that the gospel's primary consequence on earth is not the forgiveness of sins, but the solution to racism, social economic inequality, poverty, crime, environmental problems, or other social ills, hence the heresy of Russian Bushism. Okay. The Reformation Charlotte are in error because they do not know who God is. The Reformation Charlotte is an error because they do not know the power of God. The Reformation Charlotte is an error because they don't know scripture. So whoever wrote that is a stranger to Jesus. Whoever wrote that has no affinity for Jesus. The person who wrote that has no appreciation of Jesus. That person is a spiritual blind God, whoever wrote that. Yet every time we repeat the model prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, we're asking that the kingdom of God will come 
and the will of God shall be done on earth as it is in heaven, Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. In this prayer of the Lord, which some of us repeat every Sunday, in the position that we and by implications others will have our hunger satisfied, debts forgiven, temptations avoided, and evil enemies overcome, Matthew chapter 6, verse 11 through 13. This hunger, indebtedness, slavery to temptations or addictive behaviors and tyrannical oppression by circumstances, other persons or groups of the very kinds of social sins, rash, shush, and verse, opposed in the victimization observed and sought to confront. Wow. While he was committed to individual salvation, Rauschen Bush believed the death of Jesus was caused by a collusion of sinful corporate forces. Rebson Walker's thoughts on the theology of the social gospel ransom explains Rauschen Bush discussed the succession of each of the following things being Jesus' death, religious dignity, wrath, political power, corruption of justice. Mob spirit and mob action, militarism and class contempt. Jesus died fighting Luther and death to prevent them because he built those sins and all their horror. He set the perfect love over against them and summons us now to the prophetic mission of working against them for the kingdom of God. To follow the teachers and example of Jesus is not okay, sorry. To follow the teachers and example of Jesus is seeking not only individual salvation but also social redemption. Is entirely consistent with the missionary impulse, and this faithful obedience fits appropriately with the concept of the missional church. As soon as after serving 25 years as a cross cultural missionary in Asia, and later teaching missions to seminaries in the United States for two decades. The missional church and the social gospel. In my experience, the social gospel connects with the theology of mission and the nature of the missional church in several ways. One correlation concerns the context in which we share witness about Christ. The industrial age of Russia versus today was not all that different from the information age in which we live, perhaps most notably in the seemingly unscalable wall that separates the poor and rich. A spirit of materialism, consumerism, and laissez-faire capitalism not only shaped the political choice and personal destinies of people then, but the same ethos at work now. Moreover, the religious warrants for not being rich provided by Carnegie's gospel of wealth and Cornwell's acres of diamonds are mirrored in the contemporary health and wealth gospel so popular in our culture and in other parts of the world. These are all heretical interpretations of the gospel embodied and taught by Jesus, a poor man who lived among poor people, who gathered poor followers from among oppressed people to bring a message of good news for the poor. A second link between the social gospel and the missional church is the motivation for doing missions. Lindley notes that some of the best known leaders of the social gospel movement, like Rashid Bush, was awakened by personal contact with the devastating poverty of urban workers to a conviction that traditional charity was an insufficient solution to the needs of the poor. The awareness of human misery prompts many people to want to respond with compassion. But the social gospel encourages us the recognition that communicating good news requires our actions as well as our words, a teaching consistent with James chapter 2, verse 14 to 17. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and any of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, yet you do not supply the body with needs, what is the good of that? So, by, so faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. A third association of the missionary church with the social gospel involves the holistic nature of the missionary task. Roger Bush developed his views about the social gospel based upon an equally strong conviction that people needed to know Christ, yet he did not and could not believe that evangelism encompassed the whole mission of the church. One day when praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, 
must have dawned upon Rashba's kingdom of God was not only the essential teaching of Jesus, but also the essential missionary focus of the church. Thus he wrote that faith in the kingdom of God is not a matter of getting individuals to heaven, but of transforming the life on earth into the harmony of heaven. A Parashan verse, transforming life into individuals on earth meant addressing every aspect of their lives and of their spiritual selves. The great 20th century missionary and author Leslie Newbegin concludes in his classic textbook on missions, thy, thy, thy prayer that thy will be done on earth as in heaven, is a vain if it's not made visible in action to the doing of that will. Consequently, effective missionary strategies have never been able to separate the preaching of the gospel from action for God's justice. Final bridge between the social gospel and the missionary church is the way in which the missionary witnesses. James Shearer, premier contemporary mission strategist, argues that one of the key issues for global missions is in the 21st century is doing mission in Christ's way. Patterning our witness after the self emptying of the servant who lived among the people, sharing their hopes and sufferings, giving his life on the cross for all humanity. Could it be that many conservative Christians regularly paint a powerful portion of Jesus dying on the cross for mankind? Far too often add only the bearers of sketches about his living alongside people in their pain and hopelessness. Jesus faced dire Jesus faced dire circumstances, suffered alongside the poorest of the poor, rejected the value system of the world, and lived as a person without material goods, vulnerable, humble, humiliated, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Yet many Christians surprisingly reject this picture in favor of the view of a powerful, victorious, ultra-masculine Jesus. Rajan Bush's understanding of how he must live if he followed the suffering of Jesus was ridiculed also. Also labored in Hell's Kitchen with uneducated and unimpressive day laborers, many of his middle-class friends from uptown urged the highly educated and sophisticated Rajan Bush to give up his social work for Christian work, but he believed his social work was Christ's work, according to Mark Galley and Ted Olson. Baptists have grown to love the 1835 hymn by Charlotte Elliott, Just As I Am, made famous through its use in thousands of revival meetings. Many might say that the words just as I am without one plea, for that the, thy blood was shed for me, that thou bids come to me, a Lamb of God I come, provide the clearest connection with the church's central message and task. But there's another hymn our missional church should be singing more often. It was written by Frank North, a New Yorker, who in 1905 under the influence of the social gospel, penned the words one of the clearest portraits ever written of Jesus, where across the crowded ways of life. Where across the crowded ways of life, where sound the cries of race and clan, above the noise of selfish strife, we hear your voice, the son of man. In haunts of wretchedness and need, on a shadow threshold dark with fears, from past where hide the lures of greed, we catch the vision of your tears. From tender childhood's helplessness, ruins grief, men's burden, toil, from famished shows from sorrow stress, your heart has never known recoil. A master from the mountainside make haste to heal these hearts of pain. Among these restless throngs abide, O tread the city streets again. Till sons of men shall learn your love and follow where your feet have trod, till glories from your heaven above shall come the city of our God. Maybe the same just as I am so often is to perpetrate an incomplete and hence not fully authentic private gospel, whereas Jesus was so involved publicly. The social gospel isn't anything other than the whole gospel after all. It's the good news of the one who came to live among us to share our sorrows and help carry our load, who gave himself for us and who calls us to do the very same for the least of these, his little ones. So I must ask, if individual believers in the church don't live out the gospel socially, are they really embracing the true gospel at all? Mm. 
I must say that I am very very grateful for what is being said. I'm going to actually pause because it took a lot out of me to read that. So my last religion stuff will definitely be the very next episode I do. But I just want to say thank you all for hearing me because it is intense. But before I go any further, um, all the articles I've read to you, I love every word that was written. Um, I live by every word that is written. All the articles just read to you, as I say for the last time. And I am for the social gospel. I am a modern embodiment of Walter Rauschenbusch. His perception of Jesus, as well as Rob Sellers' perception of Jesus, because Rob Sellers wrote this article. Um, that's the Jesus that I know, love, like, respect, and follow. Um, I know in my heart. that my relationship with Christ-likeness is healing. And I'm very grateful that I'm doing the work to heal it every day. I am for social reform myself. Um, I'm very grateful to live the life that I know in my heart that I must keep on living. 